Hey Hennis fans, thank you so much for your listenership and support throughout 2023. The team is taking a break throughout December, but we will be releasing full versions of some of our most popular stories to tide you through until the new year, where we will come back with even more heinous cases. It was a sunny afternoon on the 23rd of July 1983 when Andrew Road would burst with the sound of sirens as the police rushed into the scene. Proning outside Mr. Robert Tay's bungalow was a police tactical team officer with binoculars. And behind him, at least five officers in bulletproof vests and assault rifles. Remember, the suspect is armed and dangerous. Mr. Robert Tay was a 61-year-old known businessman and philanthropist in Singapore who married a 45-year-old Annie Tay. Together, the couple had a 12-year-old daughter. They were here in response to a call the daughter made. Team, we're a go. The officers came rushing in and immediately they knew something was wrong. The smell of blood lingered in the air and it grew thick as they approached the study room. On the floor, laid a man with a raffia string likely at his neck, his head bloodied and smashed in. Beside him was a huge wooden stool, painted red on the edges. We found one male, deceased. Could be Mr. Robert Tay. The officers would proceed to continue inspecting all of the rooms before approaching the master bedroom, where they would realise that what they needed wasn't guns nor bulletproof vests, but a cleaning crew. Because what they found that day wouldn't just be the murder of Mr. Robert Tay. Instead, it would have been a massacre of his entire family. This is Heinous, an Asian true crime podcast brought to you by Mediacorp and produced by OneUp Media. In the last episode, we discovered that Sekim Wa, the younger brother of Sekim Seong, was the laughing murderer that killed a couple in Marine Parade. We unfortunately also expected him to have killed more than just a couple, as he had ambitions to be greater than Lim Ban Lim himself, who terrorised Singapore with robberies and murders for over 10 years. Just like how Lim Ban Lim had an accomplice, Chua Ah Kao, Se Kim Wa had an accomplice, Mr. New Kok Meng. Madam Tang, this is what I need from you. Kok Meng said, Let my parents and my grandma know that I am sorry for the mistake that I have made today. Remember my best friend's name, Lao Beng Hyong, and bury me beside him after I kill myself. Madam Tang was staring at him shaking. She didn't know what to do. A life is a life. Repeat to me what I asked of you. Kok Meng begged. Madam Tang repeated shakingly. Kok Meng stared at her. His eyes dead inside. He knew that she understood his request, so he was ready to pay for his sins. 
You shouldn't kill yourself, Madam Tang repeated. She was facing the barrel instead. Kokmeng had pointed it to her as she pleaded with him to spare his own life. Go to the police and run for your life, Kokmeng said. Madam Tang knew that Kokmeng would not repeat himself, so she picked up Little Dawn and ran for her life. Kokmeng fell to the floor and held the AR-15 towards himself. How did everything become like this? Kokmeng must have thought as he brought the rifle to his mouth. I remember I was a good boy. The records of Kokmeng were hazy about his birth. It seemed to have been anywhere between 24th of July 1963 to 23rd of July 1964. But what wasn't hazy was what led him to that day. New Kokmeng remembered the scent of rubber as the barrel was inserted into his mouth. Growing up in Pekananas in Johor, he was the sixth child out of eight children and worked at a rubber plantation since he was young. Life was simple back then, but it was tough. He always had to figure out how to bring money back for the family and recalled often sleeping in class. Kokmeng, he heard his teacher's voice in the background. Perhaps my mistake then was to quit school? He might have thought as he inserted the barrel deeper into his mouth until it was touching the roof of his jaw. After he left secondary school, he recalled a better job in a bakery near Pekananas as a male nanny. He would take care of their kids and send money back home to his family. This was the last memory of Malaysia before he arrived in Singapore. He had been hearing about how Singapore could be the city of opportunity, so he headed straight to the beautiful Lion City and picked up a welding job there. Perhaps I should have stopped then, but I wouldn't have gotten to meet Lao Beng Hyung, my best friend. He continued thinking as he could taste the metal in his mouth. His finger was on the trigger. Unfortunately, Beng Hyung was part of a secret society. His parents would eventually give a statement in court that Kok Meng was a good boy, but was led astray in Singapore by Beng Hyung. Their relationship would not last because Beng Hyung would have died in a gang fight. Seems like violence always comes back and haunts us. Kok Meng's two thumbs were firmly on the trigger. He took a deep breath and on his exhale, he gave it a squeeze. But as fate would have it, the gun didn't fire. Frustrated, Kokmeng took off on a motorcycle for familiar ground, Malaysia. There was no need to buy a coffin, no need to arrange for funeral proceedings. His best friend, Beng Hyung, would remain buried alone. Before we dive into how Sik Kim Wah and Kokmeng met, it's important to understand the connection as to why they targeted Mr. Robert Tay. You see, if it was just a robbery, then why his house? There were tons of rich houses all around the area at Andrew Road. Mr. Robert Tay was also said to be cheerful and charitable, which made it seem unlikely that Kim Wah or Kok Meng were acting on a vendetta. So why Mr. Robert Tay? According to the records, Sik Kim Wah spent time in a rehabilitative training centre which had a two-phase program. Phase one was the residential phase where you were detained within the RTC and follow strict timetables. And phase two was the supervision phase where offenders were expected to work, study or perform community service under the guidance of their reintegration officers. The second phase was crucial and helped to reintegrate them back to society 
through the work that they would have done if they didn't go astray. This was also a positive step towards shifting Singapore's hard retributive stance to a more rehabilitative approach. What we learned was that Mr. Robert Tay's charitable work was part of this program. The sun was beating down on a bus as it ferried the young convicts to their respective locations. The bus stopped at a house along Andrew Road. Kimwa, here's your stop, someone would have said, and he headed down. He could have been brought in by a number of people, or was likely told to meet Jovita S. Virador, who was aged 27 and a domestic helper. Kimwa was in a second phase of his reintegration program and was told that he would help plant the orchids in the garden. He got down and stuffed his hands into the soil to make space for the orchid. It looks like society has a place even for this plant. Am I worse than it? He looked up at the house and noticed its beauty. A two-story bungalow with a sprawling garden, pristine white walls, and topped off with neat symmetrical rows of tan-coloured tiles. It was a picture of luxury and serenity, both of which were completely alien to Kimwa until that point. His mouth started twisting towards his ears, and without realising, he was laughing uncontrollably. <laughs> According to the records, there were many opportunities for Kimwa to come to know of Mr. Robert Tay through his involvement in the RTCs. All these instances would have given Kimwa a more intimate look into Mr. Robert Tay's life, where he would learn about his kindness, his house, and his wealth. We don't think the reintegration program was ever at fault for giving Kimwa the opportunity. If anything, he was clearly an anomaly. His father would also appear in court and declare that he even thought Kimwa was insane. But unfortunately, Mr. Robert Tay did not know that. And he would continue giving access to Kimwa, a decision that would ultimately cost him his life. The records as to how Kimwa and Kokmung would meet seem unclear, but it's assumed that they didn't even know each other very well. Most sources seem to put their meeting with each other merely a few days before the actual incident on the 19th of July, 1983, at Block 44, Kalang Baru. I can't believe the others chickened out. Kimwa might have said. Kokmung knew what he had meant. Just that day, they had decided to rob a petrol station at Sarangoon Gardens, but everyone else backed out because the traffic was getting heavy around the area. We would have gotten the money and escaped. Kimwa continued ranting. Now, we have no money and nowhere to go. You got anything on, Kokmung? We can head over to my place while we figure out what to do next. As they headed back to Jalan Gyok Siangneng, they were passing by Kettle Court. This place looks familiar. Kimwa was thinking. We're around Andrew Road. Kimwa started laughing. He knew exactly what they could do next. Together, the duo would have decided to rob the house of Mr. Robert Tay and commit one of the most gruesome acts in Singapore's history that it's dubbed as the Andrew Road Triple Murders. It was a sunny July 23rd, 1983. Little Don Jacinta Tay Aishan put on her roller skates and went out to her car porch. Dawn was the daughter of Robert Tay, 
a known business owner and philanthropist in Singapore. As she headed down, she saw two men just outside. They were fixing their motorcycles. I wonder what's in their green bag, she thought. They sure are taking a long time to fix that motorcycle. She thought again as she returned to the study room. Dawn's schedule was routine. Wake up at 7.30am, roller skate, open the gate for her tuition teacher, Madam Tang, then close the gate. Except today, the gate would not close and the two motorcyclists would walk in. They would interrupt both Madam Tang and Little Dawn in the middle of spelling and dictation with a rifle and a knife. Then proceed to round up the family, demanding cash and jewellery. Look, Mr. Robert Day, we are here only for the money. If there isn't the money, then we'll leave with something else. Robert took a deep breath. Okay, there's money in the bank. I can get it for you. Good. One of the men might have replied, If everything goes as planned today, we'll leave with the money and no one gets hurt. Robert Tay might have felt momentary relief as he opened the gate, headed to the bank and returned home with another of the motorcyclists. But nothing would go according to plan and that would be the last time that the gate would welcome little Dawn's father back. In the last episode, we learned about Sek Kim Wah and New Kok Meng, the perpetrators, and Mr. Robert Tay's family, the victims. We also learned that Sek Kim Wah had a particularly cruel childhood, where his brother Kim Seong would attest in court that both him and Kim Wah had felt rejected by their parents and society. So why then did Kim Seong decide to become an electrician, while Kim Wah decide to commit the ultimate sin? The attachment theory details how your relationship with your parents, starting in infancy, can lay the foundations for your future relationships in adulthood. There are primarily four different attachment styles, and if all goes well in our childhood, we grow up to have secure attachments. That is, we are able to form healthy, long-term relationships with others. But if your parents were not around, and were perhaps even your source of fear, then you might grow up having a disorganized sense of attachment. This would describe individuals who are highly inconsistent in behaviour and who do not trust others. Parental upbringing in your early years might not define the rest of your life, but it can most definitely have an impact. Through all the records, both Kim Seong, Kim Wah, and even their father would mention how the two siblings were not well taken care of and were even abused. But for Kim Seong, two things seem to have happened differently from Kim Wah. Number one, he was about two years older than Kim Wah, which meant he would have spent more time with their grandmother before living off the streets. While their grandmother was tough, she did care for their needs. And number two, Kim Seong seemed to have learned a different side of relationships through the romantic novels that he read in the rehabilitative training centre. While we assume he knew that the books were fictional, it did give him something aspirational to desire, other than violence. However, we believe that there were other factors at play that might have influenced Sik Kim Wah. Nonetheless, as we discovered what he was about to do, we knew he was no victim either.
Sikkimwa was in a Mercedes-Benz with Mr. Robert T, heading towards the bank. Just minutes before, Kimwa and Kokmeng had just barged into Robert's home and robbed them at gun and knife point before demanding for Robert to draw more cash from the bank. The night before the robbery, Kokmeng and him agreed that they would not kill anyone and that they would go there purely for the money. As they talked and shook on the agreement, Kimwa felt like a raffia string had bound his neck and hands to the words. I guess that's what a promise feels like. Kimwa might have thought. A voice broke through the clutter of his mind. You're a young man, right? Mr. Robert Tay whispered. You've got a whole future ahead of you. Why turn to robbery? Sikimwa had nothing to say. Wait, do I know you? Mr. Robert Tay continued. You were the boy that came over to my factory to work. And my garden to plant orchids. Kimwa, how are you? Sekimwa froze. It felt strange to be seen. All throughout society, he was thrown away, ignored, rejected. But this man, Mr. Robert Tay, knew who he was. He felt his cheeks pinching themselves and his lips curling. Am I feeling happy? Sekimwa was thinking. But the scars of society had already left their mark and a familiar memory began bubbling inside him. It brought him back to the Hawker Centre car park at Marine Parade, where his first victim, the husband, looked right at him and acknowledged who he was for the act that he was doing and the rifle he was carrying. Don't move. Hey, that's from Army Cam, right? You know it's a serious offence to steal a gun. Just give me everything you have. Don't play around with me. The memory was bubbling beside his promise to Kok Meng as he felt the raffia string around his neck and hands snap. They turned into the bank and Robert drew some money before they headed back home. All the while, Robert could tell something was wrong. It was as if Sikimwa broke after he recognised him. This moment would be brought up in court by Sikimwa as the pivotal moment for why he broke his promise to Kok Meng and decided that leaving with the money was not enough. The 23rd of July, 1983, would change Little Dawn's life forever. After Robert returned, all his family members were gagged and bound. Come here, Mr. Robert Tay. Kimwa called on her father. Mr. Robert Tay stood up and left for the study room. Is he turning the place upside down? Don's mind couldn't stop thinking. And what is that thumping sound? Kimwa returned, but not with her father. He then called for her mother and her maid. Be brave, darling. A whisper came from her mother as she left the room. Don could hear the man dragging them both towards the master bedroom. And again, that thumping sound came with the same constant rhythm. Be brave, dear. Dawn held on to her mother's words as she inched towards her tutor, Madam Tang. Kim Wah's fingers were squeezing tight. He noticed Mr. Robert Tay's strange expression as his fingers were holding on to the raffia string. This is taking too long, Kim Wah thought, so he let Mr. Robert Tay go and grabbed the wooden stool nearby. He looked at Mr. Robert Tay's clean head and smashed the wooden stool right onto it once. 
Mr. Robert Tay continued moving. He smashed it twice. Mr. Robert Tay was still twitching. He smashed it thrice. Better to be safe than sorry, Kimwa might have thought, and he bashed Mr. Robert Tay's head right in. He stopped moving. That day, Mr. Robert Tay died at 61 years old with strangulation marks on his neck and a fractured skull. What if he told his wife and made about me? The thought began festering in Kimwa's mind as he took a break. What if he told his wife and made about me? He went back into the room where Don was in and pointed at the wife and the maid. You and you, come here. He left them in the master bedroom before heading to the kitchen to grab a bunch of wires and an extension cord. He took the two wires, stuffing one end into the extension cord before he approached Mrs. Tay. He placed his hand into her mouth and removed the gag. (gasps) Stick out your tongue for me, he said. Mrs. Tay felt a strange sharp object onto her tongue. She braced herself, but nothing happened. She heard a cackling noise and maybe a soft whisper as the sharp metal objects left her mouth. (laughs) Silly me. The power wasn't on. She heard the sound of a switch clicking. Then, a tickling of her feet. But again, nothing happened. According to the records, Sekimwa was testing a new murder methodology. He wanted to learn to electrocute a person and would admit to spending a few minutes meticulously testing his methods, which included electrocuting fish in a bowl. But somehow, it would not work. Sekimwa would explain himself in court the frustration that he felt. I was wondering why it would kill the fishes, but not a human. Since electricity could not kill, I decided to kill the victims by strangling them, using the old method. He would dig deep into the necks of both of his victims before beating them with a chair over and over again. On the 23rd of July, 1983, Mrs. Annie Tay, at age 45, and Miss Jovita Esvirador, 27, would have died with deep strangulation marks on their necks and contusions from a wooden stool. Dawn, at age 10, would have lost both her parents and become an orphan. While the situation looked bleak for both Dawn and her tutor, Madame Tang, something phenomenal was about to happen that explains how they survived. Kokmung was confused as to why they were thumping noises within the house, so he followed them and heard them getting louder and louder as he approached the master bedroom. He turned to see Sekimwa holding a stool and using it to smash two bodies. Something within him stirred. We promise not to commit any violence. Kokmung was thinking, we only need the money. It was unclear what clicked within Kokmung. Maybe it was the memory of how violence killed his best friend, Lao Binghyung, or that murder was just a line that he would not cross. But a couple of things started adding up for him. 
he would realise that Sikimwa had broken his promise of non-violence and seemed like he wanted to kill off everyone. He would also notice that he was holding a gun, a weapon that Sikimwa could use to increase his intentions by tenfold. No one else has to die, Kokmeng thought as he rushed back into the room with Dawn and a tutor. Kokmeng would rush into the room, lock the door that he came in before untying both Dawn and her tutor's hands. What is happening? One of them might have shouted towards Kokmeng. He felt overwhelmed with the memories of everything that he had done. I'm sorry, but both of you will need to go now. Kokmeng would have checked if Sekimwa had left before opening the door for both Dawn and Madame Tang to run out. As Dawn was running, she would recall passing by the two rooms, the study room where she would see her father on the floor and the master bedroom where her mother and maid lay dead. Both would run into the neighbor's house and scream as loudly as they could. Please, somebody help us! The aftermath of the Andrew Road triple murder saw a raid at Block 12 Alexandra Road on the 29th of July 1983, just one week after the incident. Sekimwa was apprehended at his sister's house in the toilet where he was trying to take his own life. Part of the reason behind the quick arrest was a map drawn by New Kokmeng of the house that Sekimwa was living in. After Kimwa's arrest, Kokmeng, who had escaped to Malaysia, approached the police station in Kuala Tranganu at 10.30pm on the 1st of August 1983 and confessed everything. It was recorded that he could not live with the guilt of his actions. Both were brought before a court in Singapore and Sekimwa was sentenced to death by hanging for five murders, two in Marine Parade and three on Andrew Road. Upon hearing his sentence, records would state that he thanked the court and exclaimed that he always thought it would be thrilling to die in the gallows. His sentence was carried out on the 9th of December, 1988. As for New Kokmeng, the court acknowledged that he hadn't intended to commit murder and as such, should not be charged for it. He also showed great remorse and provided aid to the police every step of the way after he turned himself in. He was sentenced to life imprisonment, which in Singapore would be 20 years in prison with a chance of parole after. He was also caned six times. It is presumed at the time of this episode airing that New Kokmeng has been released from prison and likely gone to Malaysia. Throughout our research, we couldn't help but wonder retrospectively, what if Kimwa had seen the damage that Lim Ban Lim did to his own family? Would he still aspire to be that man? The legend that was built around Lim Ban Lim was filled with tragedy surrounding the people who knew him. In December 1977, Lim Ban Lim's brother, had been stabbed in the thigh and head by a mob of 10 youths. Even his brother's friends were injured during the altercation. And what if he had experienced a loving family growing up? Or if he had someone to motivate him or guide him to build a future? We considered these questions because we know these things matter. According to the records, what pushed Sik Kimwa over the edge to commit the Andrew Root murders was a letter from a coffee shop girl whom he loved. The defence would use this to provide some justification for his actions. We couldn't find the letter, but it's assumed that this letter broke Sikimwa's heart because of a statement that Sikimwa gave in court. 
He said, After receiving the letter, I had the impression that there was no one to supervise me and I could do whatever I liked. I was frustrated. I like when someone tries to exercise control over me, to care for and look after me. But all they were interested in was money. Since all anyone ever cared about was money, I would get it by hook or by crook. And the more, the merrier. <laughs> 